0: morning, City Walk Church. How are we doing? Come on. It's, it, it's, thank you very much. Uh, as uh, Derek said, my name's Chris. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, we're so thankful that you're here, whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or whether you find yourself kind of in the lane of skeptic, maybe you're investigating faith. We created this place with you in mind. And uh, so we're thankful that you're here. A couple quick announcements before we dive into part two of Skeptic. Uh, next week, if you didn't know already, and if you di- didn't, you may want to write this down, is Mother's Day. And so if you haven't been to CVS or wherever you buy your cards at, it would be a good thing to do. I know I've got to buy mine tomorrow for my mom to mail it, so it gets there to Ohio by uh, next week. Uh, but is Mother's Day, and so next week we are going to have a special kind of continental breakfast for moms. Uh, we're going to be doing a few giveaways. Uh, we're not gonna—you may have been to some churches where they gave you a, a book on your way out that you never read the whole week, you know, the whole year. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to give away some pedicures and some manicures and some some stuff that moms would uh, really uh, enjoy, and so you want to be back next week for that, but you don't want to be in this room, because if you're in this room next week, you get to be at church all by yourself. Uh, Actually, I think there's something going on, which is why we're not going to be in this room. We're actually going to be on the other side of the campus in their large gymnasium. Everything will be set up just the same. It'll just be the opposite side of the campus, and so we'll have somebody here next week. If you forget and you pull up... We'll direct you that way, but it'll just be the other parking lot on the opposite side of the campus, and so uh, we're looking forward to Mother's Day. It's going to be a special day. And then the very next week, March 19th, we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. We're going to show up to church on March 19th in our work clothes. And uh, we're not going to have worship, we're not going to do a message, but what we are going to do is we're going to gather at 10.30 and for about an hour, hour and a half, we're going to serve this school. And uh, we're going to do some projects for this school. We've been working with their principal and some of their staff on some things that they would really like to see done right here at this school. And so we just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus that day. And so we'll have childcare for the littlest ones, but then we're going to have projects for the the elementary age kids and and us as adults, and we'll do that for about an hour, hour and a half, and then we'll have some lunch together. And so those are the next two weeks. Uh, It's going to be a good time, Uh, and so I hope you'll join us for both of those weeks. Have you ever been in a spot, and we've been dealing with questions in this series, when you have? had a question, and it was a question that was kind of burned into your mind or in your heart, but you weren't allowed to ask it. When you were a little kid, or maybe you remember driving on a long trip, and you desperately wanted to ask the question every little kid wants to ask 32 times on a trip, but your dad or mom said, do not ask me again when, we get, when we're going to be there. It's you asked me that five minutes ago, and then five minutes before that. But in your heart, as a little kid, man, you just you just wanted to ask, and your parents said, "Stop! You are not allowed to ask that question." Or maybe you've had times where you have been allowed to ask the question, and you really wanted to find out an answer. But when you asked the question, nobody really understood the question, and so nobody was able to help you with. Your answer. And so it's frustrating when you have a question and either aren't allowed to ask it, or when you ask it, people look at you like, Huh? What what do you mean? And, and they, they aren't able to answer it. And when you can't get that answer you desperately want, it's frustrating. And, and what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks in this series is we have been discussing some of the big questions. That we have about God and Christianity. And our goal starting last week in this series was not to answer every question at the end of the, the service and kind of wrap it up in a nice bow so everybody left happy. But our goal when we ask these questions and really discuss some of these things that we've probably all wondered about was to maybe bring some perspectives or insights to some of the questions that we've had that maybe we haven't thought of before. And, and unfortunately, over the years, the church has not always been the safest place to ask a question. And, and maybe that's your church experience where you have, uh, growing up, you remember having questions and, and almost not being allowed to really ask the question. And, and unfortunately, the church has been that safe place. Where you could bring your questions, and so what we've wanted to do in this series is, no matter if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, or maybe you're the you're in the lane of kind of skeptic, maybe you're an atheist, maybe you have a lot of questions about faith, we believe this series is going to be really helpful because all of us place our trust somewhere, and so if you find yourself. Maybe in the, in the skeptic, maybe you're a little cynical, maybe for good reason because of your church experience, maybe you find yourself in that lane, then, then my, my like ask last week of you was, hey, would you be willing to doubt your doubts? Would you be willing to maybe question some of your questions if you find yourself in the skeptic lane, maybe the atheist, maybe the cynic of this whole Jesus thing, would you not, I'm not asking you to sign on the dotted line of anything, but would you be willing to at least begin to maybe doubt your doubts or question your questions? And if you find yourself, maybe you say, Chris, I I find myself in the lane of a follower of Christ. I've been following Jesus for a long time. Maybe you grew up in the church. You may not know why you believe what you believe, but you're kind of in that lane. Then then the the encouragement to you we talked about last week is from Peter, where Peter says in in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you personally have so what Peter didn't ask us to do is be ready to answer every question about every verse in the Bible but what he did say is he said be prepared to defend your decision to follow Christ be prepared to defend your hope your confidence in Christ not win every argument or argument not defend every verse not not defend all of church history not defend all the crazy stuff that people have done and signed Jesus name to over the years not defend all that just be willing and able to defend the hope that you have why are you a follower of Christ for Peter it was easy for Peter it was all about the resurrection I mean, he had spent time with Jesus, he had watched Jesus die, he saw an empty tomb, he had breakfast with Jesus after he rose from the dead, and so for Peter, it was all about, man, my hope is because Jesus rose from the dead, and that's why I'm a follower of Jesus. And our foundation, if you're a follower of Jesus, is simply this, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the grave and that's the foundation and we if you're a follower of Jesus you need to be able to at least defend why you believe that so so no matter if you find yourself in the lane of skeptic or in the lane of of Jesus follower no matter what's your kind of take on this whole thing there's still some big questions That every single one of us grapple with that maybe we've even been afraid to say we've grappled with. that, That we need to talk about. Last week the question we dealt with is one probably every person in here has thought about and grappled with. And it was the idea and the question of how could a good all powerful God allow suffering and pain like we see in our world. That is a great question and we talked about that last week today what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves another question. We want to grapple with another thought that probably every single one of us has had at some point, and it's simply this. Can I trust the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? Can it be trusted? You probably, if you grew up in church, and some of you have some of you 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 can't remember a time in your life when you weren't at church on a sunday morning and so from the very beginning, you remember man you were you were in a little Sunday school class as a two or three year old and somebody held up a bible and and you might have even pledged to the Bible, which that's kind of weird to me but but that you may maybe even did a little pledge to the Bible. And then somebody said to you, this is God's word, every bit of it is true, and you need to believe that, and for you, you said, okay, that's what I did. Somebody told me that, okay, I'll believe it, that's God's word, I'll believe it. And for me, I never grappled with that idea, it was like, okay, they told me to believe it, they told me it's God's word, okay. But... For some of you, you believed that when you were a little kid and kind of that's what you were taught. But then you went to college. And you had an English professor in freshman English or a history or philosophy professor or another student begin to poke a hole in maybe one verse or one portion of the Bible. They begin to to kind of bring a question to the surface. And and you, your little Sunday school, I believe the Bible because my Sunday school teacher told me so. It began to kind of fold like like just a deck of cards. And you have grappled with this because when you grew up, you were taught this is God's word, believe it, but somebody began to give you some questions and it almost all began to fold in your mind and you began to struggle with your faith. And and one of the reasons that you struggled with your faith was, was simply this, that Your crisis of faith was built on a false assumption. And here's the false assumption that if what I just described was you or is you, the false assumption is this, that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. You say, that almost sounds like heresy. No. No. The, the false assumption a lot of us made in college when somebody asked us a question that we didn't know the answer to, that made us struggle with our, our faith, was that the foundation of our faith is the Bible. And see, the foundation of our faith is the same foundation that was Peter's foundation, and it is an event, not a book. The event That is the foundation of our faith that no matter if you can poke a hole in in one of the books or you have a question that I can't answer, my faith is not moved because my faith is not in a book. My faith is in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, went into a grave, three days later got up out of the grave and is alive and there were eyewitnesses, historical documents that verified it. That is the foundation of faith and the false assumption absolutely the, the the false assumption that some of us and and I understand I get it and so I'm not down on you but but your your faith was all wrecked in college because somebody began to poke a hole in the fact that you really believed there was a boat that 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 was as big as a cruise ship and and it there was a flood that covered the whole how do you explain that and you said oh can i explain that i, I uh. It was just on the cartoon, the, the veggie tale I watched growing up. I don't know. And it, you know what? The foundation of our faith is not a book. The foundation of our faith is an event. And we can be confident in that event. You're saying, so you're telling me we can't be confident in the Bible? No, that's why we're talking about it today. Because that which brings us back to the same question we started with. Okay, can I trust the Bible? If the Bible's not the foundation of our faith, it's obviously a very important part of our faith, so can I trust it? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you You've uh, maybe whether you grew up in church or not, you you may have heard this passage, it's by a guy by the name of Paul, and he was writing right before he died, right before he was actually about to be beheaded for his faith, he wrote this to a young man named Timothy, he said this, he said, all scripture is breathed out by God. Another way to say that is it's inspired by God. And it's profitable, what's it profitable for? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul, as he's writing to Timothy before he leaves the earth, he says, I I, want to remind you that the scriptures, the Old Testament, the books of the New Testament that have been written, all scripture is breathed, inspired by the very God that created the universe. And not only is it inspired and God-breathed, but it is profitable. It is helpful to teach you. It's helpful to show you where you've gone wrong. It's, It's helpful to correct you. It's helpful to train you in righteousness. It's a powerful book. And I need you to know, Paul says, that it's inspired by God. And so I believe the Bible is true and can be trusted, but it's not because somebody told me. It's for a lot of other reasons. It's not because my Sunday school teacher, when I was three years old, told me to believe that book. There's a lot of other reasons, and I want to share with you some of the reasons that I believe and that I believe you can put your confidence in the Bible as a trusted, reliable source, and it not be because your Sunday school teacher told you so. The first reason... For me, that I trust the Bible and I believe it's very, very reliable, is the Bible, and, and this is true, the Bible is the most reliable collection of ancient writings. That's not a preacher talking. You ask any historian, the Bible is the most reliable collection of ancient writings on planet Earth. You say, oh, Of course, that's what a preacher's gonna say. Well, let's talk about it. Let's not talk from a preacher's perspective. Let's talk with, our, with an intellectually honest perspective that a historian, a conversation a historian would have. See, if, if you know anything about ancient writings, you know that their measurement for reliability and kind of how they determine if they're a reliable source, there's two primary measurements. There's a few others, but there's two primary measurements. The first one is simply this. How many copies of the writing exist. How, how many copies of the writing exist? Because the more copies helps you uh, see the consistency between the copies compared to when the original was written. So obviously back in, in the ancient times, they didn't have computers, typewriters, they didn't have copy machines, they didn't have any of that. So anything that was written and copied was handwritten and copied. And so one of the ways that that historians, when they look back at at, at pieces of literature that all of us have read and been taught about in school to, to really verify if they're true, real, and reliable is they look, how many copies of that writing do we have from the author? But the second thing they look at is this, how much time passed from the original writing and the earliest copies we have? So from the original time that it was written to the earliest copies that we have, it's called a time gap. How long was that time gap? And so let's, let's look at a few that you would know. You've heard of a guy by the name of Plato. It's similar to a Disney character, if you put a U in there. But, but Plato lived in 400 BC. Uh, he's a Greek philosopher, mathematician. He's somebody that uh, a lot of our education system, a lot of our philosophy has been Uh, influenced by him he was a writer and and in Plato's writings we have 210 copies of his writings so that's you know pretty good we have two I mean he lived in 400 BC and we have 210 copies of his writings the time gap from and you see it there on the screen from when he lived to the earliest copy we have is 1300 years so you think is that is that good well here's another thing Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Socrates? Probably. Has anyone ever told you, hey, we don't believe Socrates really existed? No, no one's ever said that. You would have got an F on a paper if you said that. But you know know how many copies of Socrates' writings we have? Zero. We have zero copies of Socrates' writings. Everything we know about Socrates, we learned from Plato. Plato. So that's one guy. Okay, let's talk about another guy that you've heard of, Julius Caesar. He wrote the Gaelic Wars. We have 251 copies, and the time gap between when he lived and the earliest copy we have is 400 years. So a little bit better. A little better than uh, our friend Plato, uh, but, but still, you know, not great. 400 years from when, it, when he lived to one of the earliest copy that's still kind of a gap. So let, let's look at another one. Let's look at another one uh, when, when, when you look at, at, at a guy that wrote something that has really become like a standard for historical accuracy. The, the thing that people look at as kind of the standard for historical a- accuracy is written by an, a guy by the name of Homer, Homer's Iliad. You probably had to read that, and uh, if you did, then I feel bad because it's supposed to be a poem but it's actually over 15,000 lines, and so it's a, it's a long poem that if you need some, some sleep, don't take any medicine, just pick this up, and it will help a lot. So this is the, the, the piece of, in literature, kind of the historic, historians look at it. This is kind of like the litmus test for historical accuracy is Homer's Iliad. It's the best of the best. We have 1,800 copies of Homer's Iliad, and the time gap is 400 years. And so, man, a lot of copies. So how does the New Testament stack up with the, the, the three people that we've talked about? Because you know what? No, no one that you were ever taught by ever said, yeah, hey, we're not really sure if Homer really existed. We're not really sure that the Iliad's really reliable. You know those Gaelic wars that Julius Caesar? Yeah, we don't really know if that was a true now, no, nobody does that. Well, let's talk about the New Testament. The New Testament, we have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. Over 5,000 of them are the entire New Testament. From Matthew to Revelation. So the, not just a piece of the, it, but the entire thing. The time gap, as you can see, is 50 years from when... The writers lived to when the first copy that we have was written. And so you can see that the New Testament, hands down, is the most historically astute accurate you don't have to leave your brain at the door to think that it's true and reliable if you believe that homer's iliad and plato and julius caesar are reliable in history in history and the historians have studied then you can put your faith not in your second grade elementary sunday school teacher believe the bible but historical people that look at this that don't even follow jesus would say you know what The New Testament, the Bible, is the most reliable collection of ancient writings. And if you were to bring in the the Old Testament, you know how many copies we have? 66,000 copies. So we're just talking about the New Testament. So, I mean, it hands down blows out of the water any other document that we deem historically reliable. So that's one reason that I believe the Bible is true and reliable that wasn't my Sunday school teacher told me so. But another reason, another reason that, you, that we can believe that the Bible is true and reliable, whether you're a skeptic or whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, whether you're not sure what you believe, uh, whether you're sure, man, I do believe it, but I'm not really totally sure, like the, all the reasons. Another reason is this. Jesus took the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament, seriously. So we put a lot of stock in Jesus. We we believe he went to, he died, he rose from the grave. Man, we, anybody that, and I've said this before, that predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we go with what that guy has to say. And Jesus took the Old Testament really seriously. And in fact, you'll you'll see as you read through the Gospels, which is what we have mostly of Jesus' life, that, that, that Jesus referred to the Old Testament constantly. And so as a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus did. And Jesus, if you were to read through some of the writings in the Gospels, you would see him reference the Old Testament. Just like Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, it says this, Jesus talking. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is basically saying, hey, I didn't come here to diss the Hebrew Bible and all the things that you were taught as kids. I didn't come here to throw that out, but actually to fulfill it. And, and, and Jesus referred to the Old Testament, he took it seriously, it was important to him, and because he did, we should. Another thing that you'll notice is Jesus constantly referenced people in the Old Testament. There's, there's a group of people today, and maybe you would find yourself in this category that say, you know what, all that Adam and Eve stuff and Noah, that's, that's, it's more like a myth. It's not true. It's kind of like a myth that people have carried on over the, the years. And it's, it's not, those weren't real people. Well, Jesus thought they were. In fact, there was a, a portion of, of scripture in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus was asked, uh, it must have been like hard question day because he was asked, hey, so tell us what you believe about divorce. And, and so Jesus says, hey, let, let me, let me sh- answer it by telling you about some people that were created first. He says in Matthew chapter 19, He answered, Have you not read that He who created them, referring to Adam and Eve, from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real people. He took them seriously. To him, it wasn't a myth. And so you tell me what's more compelling. I believe the story of Adam and Eve because it's in the Bible. Or I believe the story of Adam and Eve because Jesus did. See, we go with what Jesus thought. We go with what, who, who he was, what he believed. He's our anchor. And so Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. He referred to people in the Old Testament. And so we believe the Old Testament is true, accurate, and helpful because Jesus did. And I get it. If you're, if you're here and, and you're kind of skeptical of this thing, I get it. Because there is some crazy stuff in the Old Testament I'm talking like talking snake eating an apple or orange or whatever fruit you decide to use for your flannel graph at vacation Bible school. You know, talking snake, then, oh, by the way, build a boat that's huge, and I'm going to flood the whole world and gather every animal, two of them, on the whole earth. Oh, yeah, the boat, it's going to take you hundreds of years. Talking donkey? Is this Shrek? What's this thing? No, this is the Old Testament. And so I get it. You you look at the Old Testament, it's like, this stuff is crazy. I get it. I agree. But we believe it really happened. Because Jesus did. And so we go with what Jesus thought. We put our hope in Jesus. And so we put our hope in Jesus because he rose from the dead. And because of that, man, we believe, does that mean I can explain every jot and tittle in the Old Testament and answer all your questions? And why did this happen? And how did that happen? No, neither can you. And if you can, you're lying, but you don't have to. No one ever asks you to defend every character in the whole Bible, all the things they did, every verse, all the church history. No. We believe the Bible is true and reliable because Jesus took the Scriptures, and for him, in his life, it was the Old Testament, seriously. And so we do. The last reason, and we, we could spend more time, and there's a lot of other reasons, but, but a few that I wanted to point out, the, the first one we talked about, the Bible is the most reliable collection of ancient writings. Put it up against any other historical document. We believe the Bible's true and reliable because Jesus took the Scripture seriously. He referred to people in the Old Testament. He believed that they were real people. So we, we could go with what Jesus thought because we're, we, we're not smarter than Jesus. But the last reason... Just quickly that I wanted to share with you is, man, I believe the Bible's true and reliable because of the authenticity of the Gospels and what they say about Jesus. So the the Gospels are the first few books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is true and reliable is because of the authenticity of those four books and what they say about Jesus. Jesus. One of the objections that, that people have, and maybe you've had this objection, and maybe this is one of the things you're like, if it was appropriate, I'd raise my hand right now and ask you this. But but one of the objections is this. Since the Bible is the source of what Jesus said, aren't we using the Bible to prove the Bible? That's like, oh, that's legit. But I would say to you, absolutely not. Because the word Bible is a Latin term that comes from a Greek term that means books. So the Bible is books. We've taken the books, the manuscripts, and put them all in one book. But the Bible itself is a collection of ancient manuscripts. There's 66 total. There's 39 that were in the Hebrew Aramaic books, the Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament. And then there's 27 manuscripts that were written in Greek and were part of the Greek scriptures. That's the New Testament. And and someone took those two groups of manuscripts and they put them together and they bound them, 66 separate manuscripts into one collection we call the Bible. And so when you look at the Bible, you're not looking at, hey, Paul is defending Moses. No, 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 no. These are all separate books written in separate time periods, many of them, by different people in different parts of the world, with different professions, all different people, which makes it another reason it makes it so special. And the important, the most important documents in that 66 books that we learn about Jesus from are what we call the Gospels that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But but here's something important to think about. Christians don't believe the Gospels are reliable because they're in the Bible. Christians believe the Gospels were included in the Bible because they are considered reliable. And, And that's important for us to understand because the Gospels, they're considered reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. Any history? buffs in here. Anybody like history? Got a few history buffs in here? Okay. Well, if you're a history buff, and even if you're not, you've heard of this, you know that the probably the, the most important and kind of epic event for the early church and specifically for the Jews happened in 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Jewish temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, it was. It was... In the midst of the first Jewish war, a man by the name of Josephus who was there, he wrote about it, he said this as he talked about the Jewish war and when that the temple was torn down, he said this, he said, the slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamber over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. And Josephus, he said, he thought that there was over a million Jews that were killed in the first Jewish war. He was a little bit exaggerating. Probably there was about 300,000, which is still a lot. But what's interesting is in the midst of this gruesome war that just marked the Jewish nation. This temple that really all of their religious practices, everything was tied to, was torn down, and the Jewish system went down with it. And then at the end of this this horrible time for the Jews, Emperor Dimension, he, he, he created and built, and you may have seen this, what we know as the Arch of Titus. He built the Arch of Titus, I think we have a picture of it. In honor of his brother Titus who was kind of the, the leader of the, the, the armies that took down the Jews, that knocked the temple down. And if you were in Rome and you were able to look in here, even in the inside of this you would... there's sculptures of Jewish people being killed and, and the stuff that they had being taken away. So this is an important, important piece, an important arts that you can go look at. That was built... To honor the people that took the Jews down and that destroyed the temple. You say, why are you telling me this? Because as important as this is, remember, 70 AD, not one New Testament writer mentions anything about this. So if this is as important as it is in history, and not one, not the Gospels, not Paul, not any of them, even mention the destruction of the temple, the Jewish war. They don't even mention it. And, and here's why they don't mention it. Because it hadn't happened yet. And here's what's, what's really cool to think about is that when Jesus was, was crucified, it was probably 32 or 33 AD, and this happened in 70 AD, and that means all of the writings that we have took place between when Jesus died and when the temple was torn down, and that means they are reliable and accurate because everyone that was written about was alive. So all these eyewitnesses were part of of the interviews and and part of the putting together of what was in these books. And so, man, for this to be accurate, you would say, man, you, you would need to write them near when the stuff happened so that there were people to verify that it really happened. And there was hundreds of people. See, historians, when they talk about myth, they say it takes... At least 80 to 90 years for myth to start to take shape. Because after 80 or 90 years, all the eyewitnesses have passed. And so you begin to get stories about things and myths begin to kind of come together. Well, all of this took place within 37 years of when this stuff was written. And so... There was no myth. We didn't have to like, I wonder what it was like to be at the empty tomb. Well, let's go talk to the people that were actually there. Well, I wonder, you know, what was Jesus like before he died? What was Jesus like? Well, let's go talk to the people that actually saw him, the hundreds of them. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder because they're still alive. We can go talk to them. See, the Gospels are reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. And so we can can say, when we ask ourselves the question, is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Your answer doesn't need to be, well, my Sunday school teacher told me, or I don't really believe it, but my mom told me that. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and as we kind of begin to land the plane this morning, you're, you're that person that's kind of skeptical of this whole thing. And, and maybe you're the person that, if, if you're honest, you were you would try to poke holes in, man, when somebody would say, hey, well, the Bible says this, you would give them four reasons the Bible wasn't reliable. Maybe you have a son, you have a daughter like that, that you've tried to talk to about the scriptures, and, man, they start to throw things at you, and you don't know how to answer them. well If you're here and you would find yourself kind of in that skeptic lane, let me ask you this. What is your reason for not believing? Did it start with someone poking a hole in a portion of the Bible, and because you didn't have the answer, you began to doubt? Maybe maybe you were the kid, man, you grew up in church, and then you got to college, somebody started poking some holes, and you started to doubt your faith. Is that you? Is that why? Were you under the false assumption that the foundation of your faith is a book? Maybe that's you. Maybe that was it. You were under that false assumption that, man, if somebody started to poke a hole in this thing, that, man, the whole thing goes down. And we would say to you, man, this is not what the foundation of our faith is. The foundation of our faith is an event. And so here's what I would ask you if you're someone that finds yourself in, in the lane of skeptic. I'm not, not asking you again to sign on the dotted line that, man, I believe all this stuff. But here's what I would ask you to do. Would you be willing to lean in and kind of delve into the Scriptures again with an open mind? I'm not asking you to believe it all. I'm not asking you to follow Jesus. I'm not asking you to join a church. You don't ever have to even come back to City Walk Church. But would you, if you find yourself skeptical, would you just be willing once again to maybe lean in like you haven't in a long time and and kind of delve back into the scriptures and delve back in with an open mind? Would you be willing to do that? Maybe you're in the lane of follower of Jesus and I would ask you the same question. What is your reason for believing? If your answer is my parents or pastor told me, then that's a weak answer. Because you can walk through life confident in what you believe and why you believe it. And you don't have to be a jerk about it. I mean, you've met some of those people. They want to tell you what and why, and they're pretty much a jerk about it. And they want to tell you how idiotic you are for not believing what they believe. That's not the spirit you want to do this in. But you can walk through life confident in what you believe and why you believe it. Your role doesn't have to be to defend every verse in the Bible, but to bring the hope of the resurrected Jesus into the spaces that you find yourself in. And so, as we we close, can you trust the Bible? I would say yes. You can trust the Bible. Not only can the Bible be trusted, but it has the power to change lives. Like, we really believe that. Year after year, story after story, we see God taking His Word through the power of His Spirit and healing families and healing addictions and bringing people from darkness to light. We believe there's tremendous power in the Scriptures. My brother Brent, I'm the, I'm the oldest of three, and all of us were three boys. And Brent, if you, and Brent was actually here on our, our first Sunday. He's, he lives in Alabama. But Brent was in our family. He was kind of the black sheep of the family. Uh, I was okay. I didn't get too crazy as in high school. I kind of stayed halfway clean. Then we had Matt. He was the middle brother. He was the kid that it wasn't good enough to pray around the flagpole one day a year, so he did it every day. And Brent was the kid that was throwing rocks at the kids by the flagpole praying. That's that's who Brent was. Brent was the kid that if there's a list of things you don't want your teenager involved in, while they're a teenager, Brent could check every single box a few times. And I can remember sitting down with Brent as a senior in high school. He was getting ready to graduate. He was looking into becoming a bartender. Uh, He had all kind of plans that were not really smart. And I remember sitting down with him at a place he was working. Uh, He was washing dishes at the rib crib. And uh, sitting down with him at lunch. And I I remember looking at him and saying, Brent, and we could do this because of our relationship. I said, you're a loser. I mean, you are, dude. You're a loser. Your life, you're, you're just not good at life. Like your struggle at everything and you like are digging holes and falling in your own holes. I mean, you're a mess. And I told him, I said, Brent, would you, would you go, would you make a commitment to go to just one semester of the Word of Life Bible Institute? I had gone there, my brother Matt had gone there. It's a, a year where you kind of study the Bible. It's kind of a gap year between your senior year and, and college. And he he said, really to get our family off his back. He said, I'll go. And I remember uh, putting Brent on the plane to go to Word of Life Bible Institute in New York. And I remember just, if you were to look at my prayer list, Brent was at the top of my prayer list every single day. I was begging God to do a work in his heart. And my brother Brent, if you were to meet him, he was a tough guy, wrestler in high school, kind of did that. And he one of those kids that tries to make you think that he's got it all together, but he's just a mess inside. And so he got on that plane. And I remember within a few weeks, my brother calling me, literally just bawling his eyes out. Because the very first class that they took at the Word of Life Bible Institute was the book of James. And as he began to hear about, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, the word of God began to penetrate my brother's heart. And it was within that first quarter of the Bible Institute that my brother realized he did not even have a relationship with Jesus, and he accepted Jesus as a savior. And then I remember picking him up at the airport and him coming home for for Christmas and just seeing my brother's eyes was a totally different young man. The same boys he was out partying with, he was begging to come to church with him. The same boys he was out getting drunk with, doing his thing with, he cared so deeply for things that were eternal. And I've watched my brother just broken over some of the decisions that he made in high school and that he wasn't the type a follower of Jesus that he is today. Today, he's a missionary. He reaches a lot of youth in our country. He's just God's using him in a powerful way. And he would tell you what changed is when the Word of God got a hold of his heart the first semester at the Word of Life Bible Institute. We believe the Bible is true and can be trusted, and we believe it changes people's lives. Like, we put a lot into it, put a lot of weight on it. We don't have anything better to tell you at City Walk Church than what the Bible says. Because we believe it can change your life. Because it's changed some of ours. And so as we close this morning. Whether you find yourself in the skeptic lane. Or whether you find yourself as a follower of Jesus that doesn't really know what you believe or why you believe it. Here's what I would do. I would dare you. I would dare you to regularly and humbly spend time in God's Word. Just, I dare you, I dare you to open up the book of John and with a humble spirit begin to spend time with God even a few minutes of the day. And and we believe that could change eternities. And so we want to Encourage you to do that because we, we are encouraging ourselves and holding ourselves accountable to do the same thing because this is about something bigger than what we experience even today. This is about eternity. This is about a real heaven and a real hell. This is about people that are really broken, that really need something they can hold on to and we don't have anything better to offer them than Jesus and his word and we're okay with that. Because we have seen it change lives, and you have too, some of you. And so I dare you to get in God's Word and watch what happens. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your Word. And Lord, we, we believe your Word not because someone told us, but for a lot of other reasons. We believe Your Word is reliable. We believe it's true. We believe it can be trusted. Lord, I pray that whether we find ourselves in the lane of skeptic or whether we find ourselves as a follower of You, God, that we would lean into the Scriptures, that we would allow the Scriptures to pour over our lives and that we would not just be hearers of Your Word, but that we would be doers. And God, we're asking that you would take your word and that you would change our hearts, that you would change our families, and that you would change our region. And we believe you can do it. And Lord, help us to be faithful with your word. In Jesus' name, amen.